Can't believe you didn't know how to say tea shock. Tea shock. Tea like shock. The, like the beverage and then the shock. <gasps> yes. Hello, bonjour, guten tag, and welcome to the Europe Alex podcast. I'm Ewan Healy, and in this episode, we discuss the upcoming elections in Ireland with Ireland Finks's and TU Dublin's Dr. Kevin Cunningham. And we take a deep dive in the elections in Azerbaijan with an interview with Anna Oriov, the editor-in-chief of Canal 13, one of the largest independent news outlets in the Azeri language. And with me, sailing the seas of European discourse, with me is Sweden's own, Europe Alexa's own, Gabriel Hedengren. Woohoo! Hi, Ewan. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. I'm excited for this very elections-packed episode we have going this week uh, with some great interviews. But uh, I was thinking before we go into those, so the island and the Azerbaijan elections, I was thinking whether or not you wanted to just go through some other news items from across our lovely continent. That's a very good idea. In fact, I've prepared some words to that effect. It's almost like we planned this. Yeah, oh my gosh. <laughs> Starting, I'm going to take you first to the Mediterranean and to Italy, uh, where two regional elections took place this week on Sunday, just this week, uh, in Emilia Romana and Calabria. The two stories of the two regions are fairly divergent, with Calabria, which is a region in the south, seeing the collapse of the centre-left list led by Partito Democratico, uh, in favour of the centre-right to right-wing list led by Forza Italia and Lega Nord. Meanwhile, in the northern region of Emilia-Romana, the centre-left list put out a stronger performance, holding on to their control of both the regional parliament and the regional presidency. While the centre-right list made gains, they were insufficient to defeat the centre-left. Uh, Movimento Cinque Stella, the five-star movement, which is a member of the inscript group in the European Parliament, saw their troubles grow as their vote collapsed in both regions, despite past favourable results there, particularly in Calabria. The Cinque Stella are polling very low on the national level and are concerned about future national elections. Well, so I'm going to uh, take you now to Bergenland in Austria. So they also held regional elections on Sunday, uh, which were a cause for a celebration for Europe's centre-left uh, as well. So the Socialist Party of Austria, uh, which is a member of the Socialist and Democrats group in the European Parliament, believe it or not, uh, they saw their vote grow by 7% on their 2015 result and retained control of the regional premiership. So they gained a single-seat majority, though, in 36-seat legislator. Now we're going to go back to the Mediterranean, but down to Europe's southeast to Greece where a new president has been elected. Top judge Katerina Sakalarpalou was elected by the Greek parliament as president of the Hellenic Republic. The new head of state, though independent, was proposed by the ruling centre-right New Democracy, EPP, who had strong election results last year and now hold the prime ministership. And her candidacy was also supported by left-wing Syriza, the former largest party, and the centre-left Kinal SND. She had an overwhelming support in Parliament, with 261 of the 300 Greek MPs voting for her in the first round. And what's exciting particularly about her is that she is the first female president of Greece. Uh, she is hey. also part of a, a long tradition of presidents being from the academic field of law. Seven of the previous presidents have, like uh, the new president, are alumni of the National and Cappadocian University of Athens, and one of the others graduated from Aristotle University of Thessaloniki. So I'm going to stay in Greece now, and we're going to cover what we love here at Europe Lex, namely electoral reform. 
Woohoo! Uh, woohoo! So they are changing their electoral system from proportional back to one of reinforced proportionality, and that's become law. So basically, what's how it's going to work is that the first place party will receive a bonus of 20 seats if it is over 25% of the vote, plus one seat for every 0.5% it achieves over 25%, with the maximum bonus seats that can be allocated being 50. Remember that, Ian. <laughs> I'll try my best. Uh, however, to make this even more complicated, the vote on these new laws failed to receive a supermajority in the Greek parliament, which uh, is needed to sort of speedily pass it through. So under the current constitution, uh, what this means is that any of these changes, they won't, be t- they won't take effect until 2027. But yeah, we'll be waiting, won't we, Ewan? Oh, we will. You know how I feel about electoral reform. Yes. <laughs> um, very excited. Um, speaking of things that are exciting, we had some unexpected news this week coming from Slovenia, where Prime Minister Mojan Saric resigned as Prime Minister after the resignation of his finance minister on the same day. Uh, He claimed that his party could not pass any of its important legislation and called for fresh elections. His centre-left and liberal minority coalition has been shaky since the end of last year when the left-wing Levika or the left party left the coalition. So follow EuropeLex for all of the updates on that and they'll be to come. But... What have we got first, Gabriel? In the last week or so of campaigning. I can't believe you didn't know how to say tea shock. Tea shock. Tea like shock. The, like the beverage and then the shock. <gasps> yes. Yeah, so last week on Thursday, the 23rd of January, I uh, spoke to Dr. Kevin Cunningham, who is a pollster and academic who's an expert on uh, Irish electoral politics. So on top of teaching me how to say the Irish word for prime minister, which I now know is tea shock, he also uh, told me about uh, this upcoming last week of campaigning for the elections and what we can expect from that. And he got down with the basics on Irish electoral politics. On January the 14th, the Irish Prime Minister, or Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar of the centre-right Fianna Gael party, officially requested a general election one year before being legally obliged to, triggering a four-week electoral campaign, which will culminate on Saturday the 8th of February. Uh, and I'm thrilled to say that here to discuss this with us today, we have Dr. Kevin Cunningham. He's a lecturer in politics at TU Dublin, pollster at research company Ireland Thinks, and he's also a former targeted and analysis manager for UK Labour. Um, hi, Kevin. Hello. Hi. So I guess just to start off, I wanted to ask you, why Leo Varadkar chose to trigger the election at this precise moment and whether it has to do at all with the Brexit process, because I think for a lot of people outside of Ireland, that's the context we've seen him in most, and that's obviously something that's coming to a close. Yeah. How about, why, why is this happening now? There's two things. Firstly, it provides a gap for, with which the teacher can actually go to the, to the people to actually ask, uh, because obviously the negotiations for the next year will be more difficult without a government. But broadly speaking, the government in Ireland has been a minority government with confidence in supply and so essentially it's been a very weak government it doesn't have a huge amount of control and somewhat in its own interest Brexit has been an issue for which Leo Varadkar has been perceived as being relatively strong the other parties in Ireland have been relatively supportive of the position of Ireland and the backstop and so it's enabled him to be perceived uh, internationally to be relatively competent Um, and so with Brexit's still kind of hanging over the 
uh, country a little bit. It's sort of a, a good opportunity to go to the country and kind of take advantage of that, uh, the way in which it kind of hangs over the country. In a sense, uh, Fine Gael, the centre-right party, his party, has typically improved and done relatively well in opinion polls as uh, various crunch points have occurred. When there was a big crunch around the backstop and the part, his party support uh, jumped significantly around that. Whenever he kind of, as it were, stuck it to the Brits, I guess the public kind of reacts relatively well um, in terms of there's still a certain amount of the population for which the old enemy, uh, <laughs> and the old enemy, is, is, is still quite important. So I started off saying, you know, Leo Varadkar's party, Fianna Gael, it's a centre-right party. Can you just describe in a bit more detail the dynamics for which it has ruled since the last election, which was in 2016, you sort of alluded to it being obviously a minority government. So can you explain its sort of coalitions and has it been very weak? So, yeah, it's a it's a minority government. So traditionally, Irish politics has been dominated by two parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. They've been the two largest parties. And although they're very similar ideologically, they would obviously not want to go into government with one another because they would know what the consequences of that might be, that the yeah. two blocks will invariably shrink, as actually they did, I think, in Portugal when that happened. But uh, that's invariably the case. So Fianna Fáil wanted to stay out of government, offer confidence and supply, meaning that they will vote for the government in any confidence votes. So any votes to bring down the government, they'll maintain the government. So any ministers that opposition parties try to get rid of, they'll vote with Fianna Gael. And obviously supply uh, relates to the budget, so they'll make sure that the budget gets passed. But apart from those two issues, sort of all bets are off. And that means that uh, Fianna Fáil, who aren't in government but are supporting the government and are big enough, pretty much have the very similar number of members of parliament that Fianna Gael have in the parliament. So that they're able to kind of team up with the opposition or with the government on various issues. Uh, Lots of people thought that that wouldn't work for Fianna Fáil because it would be neither opposition nor government. How could it kind of, you know, attack the government while also being in the government? And they yeah. thought this might uh, hurt that party, but actually it hasn't. Um, and, uh, the two parties have kind of maintained their standing in the public. The other part of this is there's a lot of there's a lot of independence in Irish politics as a function mm-hmm. of the electoral system. Um, those members of the parliament, or TDs as we call them, are quite influential in this and, and they actually in part prop up the government as well. Um, I guess we can just go straight to the other major parties then. So there's Fianna Fáil, as you said. So you describe it as a centre-right party, as is Fianna Gael, but in the EU parliament, it's in the Liberal group. Yeah. Uh, how come they are in different groups in the EU parliament and how would you distinguish between the two ideologically? So, the, so yeah, I mean, this is a... It's an ongoing question often in Irish politics. Why do we have two parties that are very, very similar? So obviously they're, they're in different groupings in the European Parliament because they want to oppose one another. They, it wouldn't look very good domestically if they're in the same group because they want to be certainly perceived as being different. Fianna Fáil historically was in the group with Jack Chirac, I think, uh, back in the day, which is kind of quasi-Eurosceptic group, or not Eurosceptic, but maybe Eurocritical. Then they moved into this Liberal group, which isn't really a fit for Fianna Fáil. I often talk to, when I worked in the British Labour Party, I used to talk quite a lot about Fianna Fáil because it's a very interesting and different political party. Mm-hmm. In the UK, lots of people have done analysis and they've looked at how where the voters are and where their parties are. And they tend to find that there's a gap, let's say, for the kind of slightly more conservative 
and slightly more economically left-wing party. And that is more what Fianna Fáil are. Fianna Fáil have broadly operated this position within local communities. So as a function of the electoral system, the way in which people choose not just their party, but also the candidate within their party yeah. uh, in a very preferential way, means that the, the politicians become very, very close to their voters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's viewed very negatively in Ireland, the fact that the politicians are so close to their voters. But I think internationally, it's probably viewed in a very positive way, because that's part, I think, of the problem of the rise of cartel politics in a lot of other countries. So yeah, if there was one thing to learn, I'd say, from Irish politics, is, is the fact that we've got this STV system, which ends up creating lots of independence in Parliament who are representing the local interests of these yeah also Fianna Fáil, which is this piece that is kind of, people say that the Holy Trinity of Ireland is uh, the GAA, which is the kind of national sport, the Gaelic football sport, yeah. uh, the Catholic Church and Fianna Fáil. Historically speaking, the kind of the bedrock of the communities of Ireland. On a good election, they're 15% ahead of their rival. On a bad election, they're only 5% ahead of their rival. So they won basically every election. The other parties. Uh, Sinn Féin, very left-wing, uh, very associated with the Troubles in Northern Ireland. They're very Republican, I guess, historically speaking. And the Troubles in Northern Ireland and the conflict in the North, the, the violence of it is particularly unpopular in the South. Neither of the two larger parties want to go into government with Sinn Féin. Uh, both have stated that they will not go into government with Sinn Féin. Um, the reasons they use for that is not necessarily that Sinn Féin is a left-wing party, but because of its association with the Troubles in Northern Ireland and the perception that Sinn Féin is ruled not just by its leaders, but also by uh, what was formerly called the Army Council, which is basically a group of permanent representatives uh, based in uh, Belfast who are not politicians, but uh, are associated with the IRA. So there's a perception that uh, Sinn Féin is still controlled uh, to some extent by the former Republican army in, in Northern Ireland. And that is the fundamental reason, certainly why Fianna Fáil won't go in with them. Sinn Féin economically look very like the Labour Party used to look like uh, in Ireland. Labour has never been a big party in Ireland. It's usually been around 12, 15%, but, and now Sinn Féin is kind of occupying that space. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's basically where we are with that one. Uh, the, the other alternatives are confidence and supply arrangement with Sinn Féin, which I think might be the likely outcome if Fianna Fáil beat Fianna Gael. Fianna Gael said that they'll offer the same arrangement that Fianna Fáil offered to them, but it might be the case that Sinn Féin. The other option is obviously the Green Party or Labour. So the two parties are constantly talking up the Labour Party. They're like, we're going to go in with Labour, because Labour are kind of broadly seen as a nice party. So Labour have always been kind of a non-threatening sort of force in Irish politics. They've gone into coalition with Fianna Fáil and with Fine Gael. So Kevin, Ireland was one of the countries who most intensely experienced what's been uh, dubbed the Green Wave in the 2019 EU elections. The Green Party gained more than 6% and now have two seats in in the EU Parliament. So how have they been able to maintain that since last spring? They transferred that international support and do they have any sort of momentum going into this this election on February 8th? Uh, there's probably three things about this. In the first case, the Green Party historically were always in and around. They had seven TDs when they went in 2011, but they got obliterated in that election in 2011 when the crisis happened. So there's a massive economic crisis. 
And the Greens, along with Fianna Fáil, were booted out very robustly. So part of their story is actually just this natural recovery of the Green Party. And obviously this coincides with the rising salience of climate change as a major issue. They will benefit enormously from lower preference. Uh, That's a really important thing. So in the Parliament, if you get, you know, in this system, you might get 6% of the vote or 7% of the vote. But based on the lower preferences that you might get, the number of seats you might get might be much bigger. How likely would you say it is that Ireland will have a new Taoiseach at the end of well, all this? According to the bookmakers, which mm-hmm. is another important part of culture here. So one interesting thing as part of the campaign, the, the politicians quite frequently go in and make a bet on themselves. And it's a bit of a okay. <laughs> Um So obviously betting probably isn't viewed as, as negatively as it is in other countries. According to the bookmakers, the opposition uh, leader of Fianna Fáil, Micheál Martin, is the favourite to become Prime Minister after this election. I don't know if that's going to be the case. The polls certainly indicate that Fianna Fáil are ahead. Historically speaking, when it comes to elections, Fianna Fáil have been underestimated in the last three elections by three and four percent. In the last two local elections, they were also underestimated. So, you know, at Europlex, we, we love the opinion polls. So could you just give a quick overview of how the parties have been faring in the polls. In the past few months, they, uh, the two big parties have been kind of on 24, 27, kind of mid-20s. Um, but uh, that's not enough to form a, 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 a majority. You would need, you know, about 40%, you know, at least uh, to get to get anywhere near there. Fianna Fáil have been behind Fine Gael for most of this period. But the polls that have come out at the start of this campaign are quite different. They showed a surge for Sinn Féin and a surge, though, depending on which poll, that's a very small, maybe a month poll, and a very big one in another, yeah. Fianna Fáil. Um, Fianna Fáil are typically underestimated in elections by around 4%. Uh, certainly in the last three general elections, in the last two general elections, it's been about 4% in each one. Uh, Sinn Féin are overestimated in polls typically by the same margin. Uh, the two parties, the most recent poll had the two larger parties combined on 48%, which is the lowest they've been combined since the general election. So that's another big one as well. So, uh, But that that's probably just a function of a lot of people becoming undecided. Cool. I guess we'll have a bit over two weeks to, to find out how this all pans out. Yeah. So thank you very much for all, for all your insight. Yeah, we look forward to following the polls in the next two weeks. Okay, brilliant. Lovely to chat to you. Thanks for for getting in touch. This is the podcast of the Fall Aggregator EuroPolex. Every two weeks, EuroPolex's head of communications, Ewan Healy, and contributor for Sweden, Gabriel Hedengren, that's me, uh, takes us across Europe talking politics, polls, and a whole assortment of general nerdiness. We're currently looking for podcast sponsors, so please do get in touch via our website if you'd like to advertise with us. What's equally exciting and new for this week is that some friends at trefpointeuropa.de and thenewfederalist.eu approached us and have now sharing our content on their platforms, sharing links to this podcast on their platforms. Do you run a media organization? That's what you're supposed to say, yes. If you say yes, (laughs) then the answer is you could also share our stuff, our podcast on 
your website. So do get in touch if you want to do that and get stuck in and join our community. Cheers to our friends at Trefpoint Europa and the new Federalist. Do check out their stuff if you're interested in European politics, which I'm sure you are because you're here. You're still here. And this is like, what, like 10 minutes in, 20 minutes in? I don't know. So if you're still here, sounds like a good, a good time. Going from Europe's western frontier in Ireland to one of Europe's most eastern countries, I've got an interview next, which took place just last Thursday on the 23rd with Azuri journalist Anna Oroshov. Hi there, Ewan here, and we are about to take an endeavour on a very exciting interview about one of Europe's easternmost countries. Perhaps a country you don't know too much about yourself, Azerbaijan, is heading to the polls to elect a new national parliament on the 9th of February this year. So that's just two weeks from now. We want to spotlight this country uh, in Europe's Far East, bordering Iran, Turkey, Armenia, Georgia and Russia. And so today we welcome Anna Orozhov, who is the editor in chief of one of the largest independent news outlets in the Azara language. Uh, his Canal 13 uh, channel has close to half a million YouTube subscribers and hence plays a vital role in promoting democracy in one of the least democratic countries on our continent. Uh, Canal 13 broadcasts daily from 10 a.m. till 10 p.m. local time. And we are absolutely thrilled to have their editor with us now to talk about Azerbaijani politics. Welcome, Anna. Hi. Hi. Good day, Iwan. Thank you very much for inviting me for this interview. Yeah, great to have you. So as I said in my intro, there are a lot of people who might not know maybe even where Azerbaijan is or really anything about it. So do you want to just take us a little bit through what's developed in Azerbaijan since its independence from the USSR in 1991 and what politics is like now? Yeah, actually, this is the, thank you very much for starting with this question, because the, today the political situation in Azerbaijan is uh, really started from the uh, 19th year when, when the Haider Aliyev, the father of the current president of Azerbaijan, Ilham Aliyev, came to power in Azerbaijan in 1993. After just two years, Azerbaijan getting its independence from USSR. And from that time, we do have in Azerbaijan always, almost every time, the political pressures, problems, political prisoners. Despite of this long time, about the 30 years that we passed from, the, from getting independence from USSR, but Azerbaijan unfortunately couldn't make any big steps towards to democracy, freedom of speech, and there are the basic human rights standards in Azerbaijan. There is a, there is a violation of human rights in Azerbaijan. There is an awful pressure against free media, political independent political parties who is thinking different than the current government. So we do have really big problems. And as you already mentioned, the Azerbaijan, one of the least democratic countries, unfortunately, on our continent. Um, thanks for that background. So, yeah, on this on this point of democracy, I was just having a look at some of the, the major company or major organizations which do democracy measurement and how they rate Azerbaijan just before we did start this interview. So Freedom House describe Azerbaijan as a not free country while the Economic Intelligence Unit call it an authoritarian regime, which is, is their lowest rating. Do you think that's accurate? I mean, how free and fair would you say that elections are in Azerbaijan? To be honest, I think that this is the elections also. If 
just on the pre-elections period of all of us who is uh, who think that the political situation should be changed in Azerbaijan toward to have more democracy, we always have some hopes that maybe this time is the changing, shifting period for Azerbaijan. But according to all previous experience, I also think that when the people themselves, they don't participate in this changing period, never democratic change can be realistic in one country as well as in Azerbaijan. Starting from the second half of last year, the, some, I would say, cosmetic change we can see in Azerbaijani government, inside of the government, because some part of the top officials, including the head of president's administration, Ramiz Mehdiyev, one of the uh, previous major figures of the current government, Ali Hasanov, who was head of the department of in president's administration, working with the political parties and uh, media, he he fired from his position. Head of uh, minister, actual minister of internal affairs, uh, Ramil Usubov, went from his position. And after all of this change, some people started to think that maybe we do have also some change toward to democracy and we will see much more democratic Azerbaijan in next year. I also had some, some hopes because we started to think that maybe under the pressures of some European institutions, some international institutions, Azerbaijani government really would like to make some, some change. But what happened during the last months of last year and in, in December, 23 of December in Azerbaijan, we had uh, municipality elections. And one of the popular Azerbaijani bloggers, Mehman Hussainov, also participated in these elections and he won elections. He really ran a good pre-election campaign, elections campaign. But unfortunately, at the end, Central Election Commission of Azerbaijan didn't recognize that the person even was elected to the local municipality. Right. Okay. So what we're seeing is is some sort of systemic prevention of opposition candidates, even popular ones, from from doing well. So I guess my my next question is, is as you've alluded to already, is about the role of the media, and I guess as a as Canal 13 is, a, as, is an important role, is pre- representing sort of an alternative voice to state media as an independent voice. You know, have you have you felt pressure from the government against you personally or against just so listeners can get a little bit of an understanding of, of what it's like to be an ind- independent media broadcaster in Azerbaijan? Yes, we started TV uh, Channel 13 as a first online a web-based TV station in Azerbaijan in 2008 all all this period we got a strong pressure from the government and uh, at the end on 2014 current authorities started criminal investigation against many politically active persons including ngo independent ngo representatives uh, journalists and the, uh, as a result of it i had to leave azerbaijan because there there is open criminal investigations against me also, just not just me, also against my wife. And I came to Germany. Right now I live in Germany because it was the only way to, to avoid from the direct pressures from Azerbaijani government and to go 
to one of the European states where there is stability and to continue our work from there. Mm. So after coming here in Germany, I tried to continue our work on Channel 13, but the NGO, which I, I was the chair chairman on this NGO, it called Caucasus Media Investigation Center. It stopped because they're all bank accounts under their arrest and we couldn't use it at all after the changing of NGO legislation in Azerbaijan. But after leaving Azerbaijan, it was just not only pressures against me and my family. On 2017, my brother, Aziz Orojov, who was the head of Baku office of TV station, he was arrested. And he, on the December of 2017, he sentenced for six years in prison. After staying 11 months in prison, and having strong pressures from international organizations, from OSC and many other uh, Amnesty International, Freedom House, they made uh, statements about the releasing of the many journalists, including my brother. Government released it, my brother, uh, but mm-hmm. this he is under conditional arrest right now. So he cannot, he has a, there is a travel ban against him. He cannot leave Azerbaijan. And still, he is keeping as a prisoner in Azerbaijan in order to have pressures against our TV station. Wow, that's really interesting to hear and and incredibly tough to know that there's this sort of lack of freedom for for journalists like you or I. That's really challenging to hear for us as Europeans. So moving from obviously your important role uh, as, as a voice in a democracy, as the important independent media in a democracy, moving on to the actual elections which are coming up. So they were called as snap elections. Do sort of two questions about this then, I guess. Firstly, why was parliament dissolved? And, and secondly, why does parliament matter? Does it have any power? So uh, just I would like to mention, this is the small part of it. That, uh, it is related to mostly the previous question. So the thinking of us was that we have to continue our free, free media work even under very strong pressures. So during arrest of my brother, we got a lot of pressures to to stop our work on internet media. For that time, our TV channel had around 200,000 subscribers, but it is like the struggle of my life. So I decided, no, we will go till the end. And today we have around half a million subscribers in just in YouTube channel and several hundred thousand followers on Facebook and Instagram page. The question related with the snap elections in Azerbaijan, why did it happen? Why dissolved the parliament suddenly? And just 10 months, we, after 10 months, we should have normal elections, parliamentary elections. But the government decided to, to, to appoint it to the February this year. I would say this is there something related with the inside of the government. As I mentioned in my previous answer, that there are two big clans inside of Azerbaijani government, which one called uh, Nakhchivani clans. This is the Azerbaijani enclave, Azerbaijani part of Azerbaijan, and Haider Aliyev, the previous president, originally was from this region. And he always used people from this region for... Uh, appointing for the top positions in Azerbaijani government. But current situation, the wife of President Ilham Aliyev, Mehriban Aliyeva, she is not belonging to this clan. 
and we all in from the media have heard that she has her own clan and she is going to make her positions much more stronger by getting out the members of Nakshivan clan out of out of the power great that's really interesting um these internal dynamics in this regime is really uh, interesting one to flesh out so i just sort of one final question for you how do you think the balance of power will look after this election I think that, uh, unfortunately, I don't think that the menacing will change with these elections in Azerbaijan. So more or less, we will see the candidates who got support from the current government will be elected or will be, as we say, appointed to the parliament. I don't believe that the Azerbaijan government who didn't let just one blogger to go to, to accept the winning of one blogger in municipality elections, they don't ever accept the independent candidates winning in parliamentary elections or propositional candidates winning. Mm -hmm. So from that point of view, I think that the situation more or less is going like the, which was in previous in Azerbaijan, previous years. But what is, what could be better? I have to say that pressure against two free media during last several months is not so strong as the last years. So it seems we have some, a little bit, even some cosmetic improvement for the situation of uh, freedom of speech, free media. Some people in Azerbaijan government, they also understand that there is a need to change the image of the government. It could be just first small step towards the democracy, but not more than this one. It's really Really encouraging to hear that you th hopefully there might be some small steps being made in the right direction. Um, just to finish off as a, as a sort of last thing, we just wondered if you might greet our European family as in the Azerai language and just quickly so people can hear what uh, Azerai sound lang language sounds like as some Europeans might not have heard it before. Okay, thank you. Benim azizlerim, ben Anar Azerbaycan'danım. Kanal 13 internet televizyasının direktörüyüm. Biz Azerbaycan'da aslında parlamenteli seçkileri keçirdik ve her birinizden bu seçkilere dikkatle yanaşmağı Azerbaycan'da demokratiyanın inkişafına destek vermenizi xayiş edirəm. Var olun, sizin desteğiniz olmasa Azerbaycan'da demokratiyada mövcud olabilmez. Teşekkür ederim. Great. Thank you so much, Anna. This has been really, really interesting having you on. We've probably even run on too long, but this has been fantastic to hear and talk to you about this really interesting election. If you want to keep up with the elections in Azerbaijan in English, follow us on all our platforms. Keep up on Europe Alex. If you want to find out more in Azerai, get to Channel 13. Thanks, Anna. Thanks. Thanks to you. Thank you. And just to finish up, it's time for our weekly section of what the heck is going on? That's not the official name for it. Who is um, who? Who's who? That's what it's called. We've got talking about European commissioners again. And this week, we've got two more commissioners to show and tell. Would it be great if we got some of the actual commissioners to come on and introduce themselves? That'd be great. If you're a commissioner and you're listening to this podcast, email me and you yeah. can introduce yourself. So I'm going to be talking about in show and tell this week, the commissioner for promoting the European way of life, Margarita Sheenas. He is Greek from the New Democracy Party, which... It's part of the centre-right European People's Party. Following the Greek general election last year, it is the largest party and the party in power there, and it has seven seats in the European Parliament, down one after its recent expulsion of one 
MEP. Sheenus is a European politician by any definition, having been, in, been an EU official since the late 80s, and he has worked underneath numerous previous commissioners and was first elected an MEP in 2007. As commissioner for promoting the European way of life, in inverted commas, Shinas is in charge of a broad range of policy areas, including consumer rights, security, judicial cooperation, and some areas of migration. Shinas' title was initially commissioner for protecting our European way of life, but this was changed after some strong criticism, particularly from the more liberal elements of the European movement. Thanks, Ewan. So... The lovely commissioner I draw out of the hat this week is one Nicholas Schmidt, and he's the commissioner for jobs and social rights. So he is Luxembourgish and represents the Luxembourg Socialist People's Party, which is part of the Party of the European Socialist Group in the EU Parliament, believe it or not, once again. And he is the party's single MEP. So that's the Luxembourg Socialist People's Party's single MEP in the Parliament. And back in Luxembourg, the party is in the ruling coalition, of the country since the 2018 election, and it is believed that the right of the Socialist People's Party to, to name the country's commissioner was sort of part of the negotiation process there when the government was formed. Schmidt is a fresh MEP as he won his seat just in last year's election, and before that he was a member of the Luxembourgish government between 2004 and 2019. That's a very long time. <laughs> and while he started off as a Minister of Foreign Affairs, he then sort of migrated into the Ministry of Labor, Employment, and Immigration. And he has the big task of succeeding Jean-Claude Juncker as Luxembourg's commissioner. So I don't know, it'll probably take a while before he's as recognizable as Mr. Juncker, but let's see. And as a commissioner for jobs and social rights, as you can imagine, his responsibilities include everything related to the EU social market, such as wages, unemployment benefit schemes, and fighting child poverty. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube to stay up to date with European politics between episodes. And if you like what we do, which I hope you do, subscribe and review this podcast to keep us around for more. You can find us at EuropeLex.eu and at EuropeLex across all social media and on Instagram. We're at Europe underscore Lex. See you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronos Karempolis. The producer and audio engineers were Raphael Peña-Rios and Leon Liesener. The script was written by our host and Matthew Nicholson. And the music was by Jose Alvarado. Nice.